Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, did you, you obviously survived homecoming weekend? No shopping carts booting it down your street or stuff like that? No mayhem? Maybe nope. the odd can or two, which is what we had. But <laughs> Nobody shooting fireworks at you. Oh, uh, yeah. No arrests. <laughs> no, no beer bottles being tossed at you. Or oh, the uh, jumping off the roof thing. This was new. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah. You're jumping off the roof for Instagram? My goodness. These changed yeah. a little bit from our day, I think. Not a great look in the middle no. of the pandemic. And uh, we may have some pretty harsh words about that from the city council later. Oh, I see. Sneak preview. Mm-hmm. Open Source is the CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Ward 3 Councillor Phil Alt, who will join us to talk about homecoming, as well as online petitions and emergency demolition of an old farmhouse in the north end of town, and uh, maybe a bit more. That will be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about the end of enemy Paul's all too brief leadership as the head of the Green Party and how it all went wrong. But first, uh, the two Michaels finally uh, came home. It was a situation uh, where (laughs) after thousands of days or 8,000 days, uh, the, the situation kind of unstrung itself rather Smoothly and swiftly, or at least that's how it seemed in the foreground. So, uh, Ming Wan Zhou, the Yahweh executive, uh, she had a court date in Brooklyn via video conference, actually, two court dates on Friday. Uh, she agreed to a deferred uh, prosecution agreement, which basically meant that she got to plead guilty to a lesser charge and in exchange, the United States let her fly home. And uh, fly home she did when, lo and behold, uh, a couple hours later, Justin Trudeau's like, hey, the two Michaels are home, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. So uh, all's well that ends well. (laughs) They waved at each other in midair. It's like, hey, there's her plane. Yeah. (laughs) That's even even though the narrative is like from the Chinese government, even Jen Psaki is like, oh, no, there's there's no link between the Michaels and. uh, Yeah. Long one joke getting released. The the Chinese government was saying it was they were released due to health concerns, which is along the lines of that more time with the family line. It's like, yeah, 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 it's totally like it's like, yeah, okay. We believe you. Now having said that, the the Michaels didn't look as bad as I thought they were going to. Mm. There there was obviously a lot. I'm not saying they were well. I have no idea how they were treated in in Chinese prison. Probably not as well as Meng Wanzhou uh, in her mansion. Yeah, yeah. But I thought they were going to look a lot worse than they did. They definitely looked like they'd lost some weight for sure. But, uh, you know, who's to say in that respect? But, yeah, they're, they're back now. And that was all. Yeah, that was quite the Friday news drop. Eh? Like, mm, wow. Mm. After after all that, the Michaels are coming home. But, yeah, the, the whole the whole denying the link thing was actually pretty funny. Because no, no one believes that. No, 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 one be- no, no one at all. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the way it was always going to go down. Like, 
they will come home when she goes home and everybody kind of knew it. And I've been, I've seen like a lot of people throw around things like hostage diplomacy. There was like one headline, I think it was a national post where it's like, it was hostage diplomacy all along. And I had this vision of the, uh, the meme of the guy on the moon pointing the gun at the other guy saying it always has been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, yeah. it, the whole, the whole thing is like, it, it's like part of this, like, I, I feel like it's Cold War era, like spycraft yeah, stuff, like the bridge of, over the Rhine, right? We have your yeah. prisoners. Yeah, yeah bridge it's, of, it's, it's, it's yeah. bridge of spy stuff, and it's like <laughs> yeah, that's right. This makes sense in the '60s when, like, you would the State Department would issue a press release or Foreign Affairs would issue a press release, and there's no like Twitter verse, and there's no like you know a hundred different uh, news people following her from her house to the courthouse, and. It just, you know, it, it just doesn't work the same. Like, you can pretend that it's the Cold War and we're passing dossiers between trench-coated guys and, and all that. It's just, uh, we're a little bit savvier. We've all seen a James Bond movie, at least one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just just give us the straight poop. Because we, we all know this was hostage diplomacy. <laughs> we all, like... It wasn't like China and Canada both had like jets lying around waiting for the day that the Michaels would and Ming Wanzhou would be allowed to go home. It's just there was obvious coordination here. Uh, you know, you we, she will leave the courthouse and go to the airport and then you will drive the Michaels to an airport. And as when she's in the air, then they'll be put on the plane. And that is just just level with us. Just <laughs> it's 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 OK. Because we all assume this is how it was going to go down anyway. And anyone who's like being a chicken hawk about this, like, how could we like rock? We asked with China. It's like, well, I'm like, there's always been these things, uh, you know, the uh, Iran hostage crisis, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the bridge of spies, it, like hostage diplomacy is a thing, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, it was always going to end this way. So and, and we know it. So just, you know. Let's not pretend. Let's not pretend this just all sort of came together at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're smarter and than that. <laughs> it'll it'll be pretty interesting as it is as the story is unwound to to see what went on mm-hmm. behind the scenes because this this is all a behind the scenes thing. We we just see the, them arriving, getting a hug from the prime minister, and Meng Wanzhou arriving to and supposedly like I don't know half a billion people watched her arrival like she was a <laughs> world leader of some description getting off the plane and i'm so happy to be back to the motherland i saw a little bit of it just a snippet on the on the news uh yeah so it's 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 being played as if it's like you say one of these the retro style but it, this is very much a uh conflict of the f- the future, which is now, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's not Cold War. It's more like a, a, a chilly war, right? It's kind of like, oh, there's a little bit of a frost there. Mm-hmm. Um, but of, as the story has has unwound, there is this reaching for it because it's, it's like, okay, the Michaels are home. What now? And they're not backdating things, but kind of reaching back and saying, well, what about so-and-so who's still in jail? The I'm thinking specifically of the Uyghur um, imam. Right. His name's Salil, right? Mm-hmm. Who was in jail for, if I have it right, using a megaphone? Mm-hmm. Has been in jail for fifteen years, and it was Stephen Harper, somebody who I don't give a lot of credit to about things, uh, who had brought this case up back in the day, which is only two thousand six. 
which seems like a long time ago. It is if you were in jail for 15 years and are still there. Family don't know where he is. Mm -hmm. um, supposedly the majority of uh, Canadians, I believe there's 115 Canadians mm -hmm. in Chinese uh, prisons of one sort or another. Majority of those are in on drug charges, mm -hmm. alleged drug charges. Um, but Including the, the four guys on death row. Yeah. And the interesting thing to come out of that, which is China, China does it the same way as Iran does, that they don't recognize the second um, citizenship. Mm -hmm. So if you're Chinese Canadian or in Iran's case, Iranian Canadian, they don't, they don't even just, they don't recognize it. It's just, you, you are Chinese. We're going to treat you like a Chinese national. And here's how this is going to go. Obviously a little different in the case of the Michaels and some others that are in jail, but it's all of this is, is, coming out in the aftermath of this and i say aftermath because it's not, it's not really like a, it is a big deal but it is not a massive deal right the you know economically things roll on and i think that's that's going to be key in the next while because supposedly there's going to be an announcement on 5g and in particular huawei's relationship to it in canada so mm -hmm. from that i think we will see the extensions of how far this deal reaches, you know, does, does Canada take a different tack on that or are they going to go another route or that is going to be something to watch, which of course we will be watching. Yeah. The, the, the I hate to say it, but like the fate of the two Michaels is almost like the least interesting part of this. I mean, it, yeah. from, from a purely, mean, yeah. from a purely political perch because yeah. Uh, are we going to let Yahweh, um, be part of our 5G network and like what's you know that's that's one of those things where like, do we want to really piss off the Chinese again so soon on the other hand like <laughs> there's a, a lot of reasons not to have Yahweh part of our 5G network and I don't uh, envy anyone who has to make that decision at the same time um, there are these rumblings that China may have interfered in the election um, by targeting areas where there are there were conservative MPs uh, in in uh, writings where there's a lot of like local Chinese ethnicity, mm -hmm. uh, and there was uh, three in particular, um, three conservative candidates who lost their writings, uh, incumbents, and it's because they're in a an area where there are a lot of people who are a bunch of Chinese descent, apparently using these kind of social media. Uh, apps like WeChat that um, are very popular in China and thus very popular in order for people here to stay in touch with people from China that they're getting a lot of disinformation about um, conservative candidates and things that uh, Aaron O'Toole was proposing or even not just that but you know kind of uh, blaming the conservatives for anti-Asian sentiment which is not mm. I don't want to say it's not it's not incorrect, but I mean at the same time it's it's a pretty short drive to go from the conservatives' really hardline stance on things like the 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 genocide of the Uyghurs um, to a lot of people who blame uh, Chinese people for the spread of the coronavirus. It's not that far a drive. It's certainly not their intent. And you know, Michael Chong, who was on our show mm -hmm. a couple of months ago talking about it, would certainly make that argument. It's not the intent to turn people against China. However, it's a short drive for people who are looking for reasons to hate Asian people to get there. Yeah. And 
I mean, I don't think you can underestimate that concern. It remains to be seen, like how much of this quote unquote interference can be directly linked back to uh, the government of China. But I mean, I've heard it from enough places where I'm not prepared to dismiss those concerns yet. And I think that's something that probably should be investigated. Yeah. When there's a pattern, you obviously have to. Yeah roll with it because there's there will there will be something going on. Are we gonna write Michael Chong is banned from China? Is that right? Is he on yes. the ban list? Yes, yeah. he's on <laughs> um, yeah. among others. But yeah, because he is, I mean even on the show he's outspoken about that. Yeah. So it is this weird balancing act with the conservatives in terms of like, well what about the Uyghurs who are Muslim? But at the same time there's this the the conservative element that's like, oh China, you know, leaning more towards the uh, Trumpian approach. The Gina mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. as we mm-hmm. used to call it for all those years. So yeah, that's um, that wouldn't be surprising. I hadn't I hadn't heard that, but uh, now I have. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I listened to. Wait a second, I'm on the show. Oh my god, I'm so con- I'm so confused. But yeah, and China will will do things, you know, along the lines of focusing on Canada's human rights records, and this will be like mm-hmm. high level jab saying, well, you know, Canada's not so hot when it comes to. Uh, Indigenous people, let's say, mm. I you know, I, I guarantee that tomorrow there'll probably be a tweet from somebody in the Chinese government about Orange Shirt Day, and mm. we'll we'll you know do a turn on it in terms of like, well, you know, mm-hmm. they keep on at us about human rights, but what about this? Which is cla- that's classic politics, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said about China, but they you know they they definitely know how to play the game and particularly the modern game because they need their they are now in this right they are a power um, that we as I kind of alluded to earlier it's like as it's it's the kind of thing like well there's all of this this other stuff going on but if the economy keeps rolling and we have very tight relationship with them right mm-hmm. so prisoner swap or no prisoners or whatever it's like that keeps on rolling so it's like well uh, how do we play this this is all this is all the stuff on the surface that everybody knows about but yeah like i said i'm lo- i'm looking forward to the kind of behind either from the michaels who will know a lot but there's there has to be like who is w- the what's his name our i would say our diplomat the canadian ambassador to china dominic barton mm. spent a total chunk of time in washington it sounds like trying to you know get all of this or chunks of it together to push it forward mm-hmm. and then you will read the like oh it was biden it's all biden <laughs> biden was the guy that did it and as i said earlier jen saki be like no nope, no it wasn't biden but it sounds like it was biden right it's like well, you yeah. need to do this we will come up with this plea deal and you will let the michaels go and we will give you this you know not not it's it's negotiation right so it's further election follow because uh, Chinese relations were uh, an election issue. But Anime Paul uh, came out to the microphones on Monday, said that uh, being Green Party leader was the worst time of her life. And now she's not going to do anymore, which is like completely blunt. But I, I don't think anyone's in a position to whether they uh, agree with her politics or not. I don't think anyone's in a position to say that Anime Paul did not have a rough time of it in the last year as the Green Party leader, so now she is out. The question is, uh, I think, how much was it her leadership style that may have clashed? Because I think that's part of it. How much of it was uh, a lot of big expectations about her, which I think played a part of it, too. There, there was, I think there was a lot of expectations she was going to shake things up and really take the 
Green Party further. And then there's a question of like how much did the internal rancor um, sink her boat before it even got a chance to get out of dock? And uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance here. Oh yeah, all the things for sure. <laughs> um, and and there's a few channels on this, but put it you know, let's just put a bit a lot of it aside for a second. Mm-hmm. Pure politics. Um, the a leader that comes in fourth in their writing, regardless of how that transpired, mm-hmm. but also sees the drop that the Greens saw in this election has to go. And it, it wouldn't matter if it was the most perfect party. Uh, we, there's been examples like this uh, in the past, like the, I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the Kim Campbell period mm. where it was, okay, let's put Kim in this position who she had a political track record. Oh, we'll have the first uh, woman prime minister and then they got I don't know if they knew that it was coming I can't really remember that far back in terms of the nuance of it but and then got creamed down to two and interestingly that came up who were they speaking to uh, Joanne Roberts mm. of the Greens who is I she may be on the council or previously on the council but a green track record and she said she made the comparison that well you know the conservatives were down to two members and I'm like yeah but that's that's from that's going down from being the government several yeah. <laughs> times over since 1867 it's not like well we went from 3 to 2 uh it, it's a different realm hmm. like that 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 is that is a colossal creaming of, of a, a a party machine well established this is a, a crumbling of a machine that was sort of like occasionally has energy and you can't like you can't just dismiss that reg- as i'm saying regardless of who was in charge mm-hmm. now and, and i think i said this before too uh in the case of bernier it doesn't matter because that that's just there's no organization there right it's the the people's is just this chaotic thing that managed to get a bunch of votes and that reminded me of the the in, those of you out there that are old enough, the social credit era, which is long forgotten. We never talk about social credit anymore. Social credit used to do really, really well mm-hmm. in Canada. And a lot of their beliefs were along the lines of people's, right? They had crazy beliefs. They had like anti-Semitic beliefs and were a seated party in Ottawa. And I'm not saying that that's right, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, th- th- this isn't something, this isn't new. You know, this, this this dynamics isn't a new thing, whether the party is sort of a little nascent thing that's growing or an established party. You know, they, they do come and go. It's not like we have to have these three or these four parties. So that's, that's sort of a, a long aside as to, like, if this happens in politics, then you have to go. Mm-hmm. Right? I would also point out, too that uh, the PPC has also been talking a lot about social credit themselves lately um, <laughs> in the China context of yeah. course going retro uh, yeah I, I, I think though I think there's there, there is a case to be made that her leadership style really kind of rubbed some people I mean the Jenikin at one example and you know I've certainly talked to green people who are not fans of Jenica Atwin and think she was kind of like always this kind of ambitious and was just kind of looking for a reason to, to go liberal, which is fine. Um, I'm not saying that's not the case. Cause I don't know what goes on inside Jenica Atwin's mind. However, like they didn't have a conversation before she went like, you know, when you have yeah. like two MPs in the house who are like actively 
you know, having friction with a member of your staff in public, like on social media. And if you're a leader and you're not stepping in, that's your caucus. That's mm-hmm. two thirds of your caucus. I mean, I realize it's two people, but when you have only three people in parliament, you know, as leader, you kind of have to step in and, and uh, you know, stand up for your people, the ones who have won, the ones who have seats. Um, even when, uh, what's his face? Zach, Zach Hines, uh, Zach's, Noah Zatman, sorry, I thought it yes. was Zach. <laughs> I thought his name was Zach for some reason. Um, even when he like he went, he didn't like really win. It wasn't like with a strong repudiation. It's like, dude, you can say whatever you want, but you know, these are our sitting members of parliament and they should be treated with some respect. Oh yeah. And and that's um I mean, that was a faux pas. However, uh the Globe and Mail, and this happened like in the middle of the campaign, so it's no wonder it didn't get any play at all. The Globe and Mail got a hold of an internal Green Party document that said that there were some problems with systemic racism inside the governance of the party. It's not necessarily people showing up to meetings in Klan robes, but it's, you know, like these things like microaggressions and mm-hmm. ways people sort of phrase things. It's um, very clear that there is in the Green Party issues with um, diversity, issues with uh, equality. And I, I don't know what this, the stats said for the People's Party this round versus uh, the makeup of the Green Party. But in 2019, the People's Party had way more diversity amongst their candidates in the Green Party. And that mm-hmm. was like a party that was actively campaigning against the idea of getting of, of bringing more diversity into Canada, but somehow they attract more diversity in the green party. That is something that desperately needs to be addressed. And frankly, it was something that never was addressed. I, I think there are a lot of people in the green party who thought, Oh, look, here's a black Jewish woman. Uh, that proves that, uh, you know, whatever you might've heard about there being systemic issues, in the uh, in terms of racism and the governance of the Green Party doesn't exist. Well, it turns out those issues didn't go away. They just got worse. And then they got a focal point because the, the head of the party was a black Jewish woman. Well, and on, and on Wednesday, uh, Dimitris uh, Laskaris, mm-hmm. uh, who came in second, close second in, in that race. Uh, yep. I can't remember where I was reading it, how they, they did a rundown of who is. It sounds like most of the people in that race who are names are not running. So they, they went to him and he had said that that what you just said there needs to definitely be investigated. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it sounds like they've investigated, you know, you can keep investigating this thing, but yeah, when you, when you have a structural problem like that, that services, of course, in the middle of all of this, then uh, it is going to affect things. I think I had mentioned this before, how the star had an article like every day about the problems in the green party, not just the, mm. you know, the racist ones like you mentioned, but all of the other stuff going on and how they weren't uh, giving anime Paul any money. Uh, for her riding, among other things, to be to you know, you want the leader to have a decent war chest. I guess it sounds like that, or peace chest, as the Greens would call it. But that uh, that didn't happen, right? So if these structural things aren't happening, then there was a problem. And in addition to that, there is all of this other stuff. We say by Amy Paul because she was, I don't, you know, most people think she's super politically involved, engaged person, very smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no one is, I don't think anybody is questioning any, any of that. 
Some mm. people, I suppose, are questioning some of that. But the the big question is, was she the right person for the right time, or was she the right person at the wrong time, or is 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 there no time for somebody like Anne May Paul in the Greens? Because to me, this is just my opinion. She presents as a liberal. It, this whole situation with with Jenica Atwin, right? Mm. She defected to liberals, and there's always this. Uh, well, it, a lot of Greens seem like that they're liberals anyway. And what you're saying there about, well, they always thought she was going to go that way anyway. Mm-hmm. The difference is, and we had talked about this before in terms of climate change, which a lot of Greens are like, you, you really just need to focus on the, focus on these things that are reflective of our name, the Greens, rather than you know all, all of the other stuff, right? And that's part of the problem is that we, we, what is what is their direction? Right. If there's this directionless thing, that's a that's a a minor party. They are. Let's face it. I mean, they had a couple of seats, but like mm-hmm. the seats that came back, is it you know did Elizabeth May win out of goodwill? Her vote went down, and the mm-hmm. situation in Kitchener was like, well, there is no liberal, mm-hmm. um, and Toronto Center has been liberal. I think since the early '90s, like 30 years, give or take. I may be slightly off on that. Mm-hmm. It's a solid liberal riding. Mm-hmm. You're almost you run and ride like, like Elizabeth May had to run around to find the place where she could win. Mm-hmm. Uh, there didn't seem to be any effort to do that, knowing like she did well in the by-election, came in second, and I don't know if that was sort of a false, like oh okay, well she came in second, so she can take it. You're right. not you're not going to beat Marcy in or a liberal, right? It's it's like those conservative writings where we said this before, like a scarecrow would run and they would win. Yeah. Uh, so that it's it's just it was this is like worst case scenario stuff. It was almost as if um, there was a setup. Yeah. Yeah. Fail. Really. Yeah. yeah. Really, because you look at it, anyone would say, "Do you why you're running there? Like, what? Do you have any links to there? There's there's sort of little tenuous links we heard about, like, well. I don't know. She's raised there. Some family there. Spent time there. It's kind of like uh, Patrick Brown spending time in Brampton, and now he's the mayor. Okay, uh, he's not from there. <laughs> and I'm not saying you have to be from the riding that you're in. That's not how our system works. You can run anywhere. Patrick um, Brown's very relieved to hear you say that. Yeah, but, but <laughs> you know, I have links to Brampton, but I would never run for for office there. But something that sort of speaks to the 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 racism issues you know scott reed conservative commentator among other things Mm -hmm. he ate this whole list of things that about anime paul and he called her urban and i was like did i did you see that and i was like did i actually hear that like do you hear what you're saying this speaks to everything that's being talked about here yeah it's like do i don't know if he realized what he was saying there but I that, don't think I, mean, I don't think he did, but I mean that's no, kind and of the problem. I, he didn't do the whole after it came out went, Oh, I'm sorry I said that. And it's like you just like and I know he's not a green, but it's you know that that is the kind of thing, right? It's like you're you're no, but I mean that's hell did that come from? Are you shooting from the hip or like come that's on? probably a good example of what was going on behind the yeah. scenes in the Green Party, but We'll have to leave that there. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and then come back with our interview with Phil. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio.
And that was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records 21 McDonnell in the downtown to Little Big Record Shop. The music known as rock and roll owes a debt to the very artist that we just heard. Shawnee Man from North Carolina, the late, great Link Ray, inventor, supposedly, of the power chord. And that song was Rumble. Supposedly, the story is, if that record didn't exist, then Led Zeppelin wouldn't have existed. So there you have it. Mm-hmm. Perhaps most famous known for being the riff when uh, the guys come into the diner to harass Randy Quaid in Independence Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, like- it is. A lot of that stuff has become this backgrounder <laughs> that we like, oh, yeah, that's where that was. Yeah. So some of you will recognize it, but not know from where. And then madly Google and find out everything you can about Link Ray. It's a very, very interesting story. Interesting, man. Yeah, yeah. Get, go, uh, get your Shazam app ready for when this is <laughs> on right. so you can anyway shows it's a real thing mm-hmm. on my phone that mm-hmm. people have anyway uh speaking of real things uh we talked to phil alt who is the ward three city council for guelph now that the election's over we can talk about guelph stuff again so we invited back to basics back to basics uh back to first principles uh so we <laughs> We talked to our old friend, our old friend Phil Alt, uh, who we did radio with for several years, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked to him about the mess that was homecoming, uh, the new petitions policy that's coming to City Council next week. Uh, what else did we talk about? Truth and Reconciliation Day, a bunch of interesting stuff, and uh, well, let's just roll the tape and uh, listen to what Phil Alt has to say. So, Phil Alt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I wasn't sure where we were going to begin, but uh, I was watching the council meeting. We're recording this on Tuesday. It was last night. And uh, the, the open session kind of wrapped swiftly and smoothly. And I was just kind of, I left my headphones in to waiting for the council to come back. It's just like, it'll be fun to add this to the end of my newsletter when how long they were in open session for after the, or in closed session for when the meeting was over. And then, Council comes out and there's a, a kind of a big to do uh, concerning this stone farmhouse at 797 Victoria Road and having to do an emergency demolition from the sounds of it. Uh, can you, it, without obviously breaking the rules of confidentiality and camera, can you enlighten us a bit about uh, what all that was about? Uh, sure, I, I can uh, provide you with a bit of information, being mindful that some of it is confidential, and so I'm going to be very, very broad in my statements. Um, what we were dealing with was a conflict, uh, in some, in my opinion, uh, between um, uh, heritage preservation, which I support with without hesitation, and questions of public safety. And so as a consequence of that, we had to address a building that was uh, somewhat compromised and that we uh, we needed to determine what is in the, uh, the best interests of the community. Do we preserve the building as it is? Do we partially preserve it? Or uh, do we ask the owner to uh, pull it down and to preserve the pieces so that in posterity, we can perhaps uh, take advantage of those pieces and preserve elements of the the historical character of that particular uh, building. And the, the property is owned by GRCA. Is that do I have that right? That is correct. Yes. So that's what kind of makes it dicey, is because it's a, a 
a, a board and an agency that the city of Guelph is sort of, I mean, these relationships are kind of tough to describe, but let's say like the city of Guelph is kind of like a part owner of the GRCA. So it's kind of like internal, like the city kind of owns it as in part as well. That's what it kind of makes it dicey. Well, you would, you would think that, but no, this would occur with any heritage building. Um, and, you know, I appreciate you saying that the city partially uh, has ownership or responsibility for it. But the GRCA is a completely autonomous organization. It's established under uh, provincial statute. So um, it, uh, it does have its uh, portfolio of properties and uh, it is responsible as a, uh, a landowner for maintaining those and abiding all the bylaws and regulations of uh, the city and of the province. Mm-hmm. So, I guess one of the questions coming out of this is, you know, for, I mean, heritage is uh, kind of a near universal concern amongst a lot of people in Guelph. You know, this has not come up, or this has come up before, uh, perhaps not as severely. But I mean, there are a lot of properties like this which are kind of on the verge of collapse without like serious intervention. You know, and I guess Councillor Karan was kind of tiptoeing around this too it's just and I, I think you were as well just like how many more times is something like this going to happen where there's a heritage property that's on the verge of you know being a danger to the public or is a danger to the public or you know and, and then councils painted into a very difficult corner like they were on monday night i think that that's fair and as i said without divulging anything that is of a confidential nature i i think that we as a council need to make decisions on what is in the best interests of the community when it comes to heritage preservation. Uh, it might require us to tighten up our bylaws to perhaps t- change our timelines if that is at all possible. Uh, it requires um, landowners to, uh, to perform due diligence and that might actually require the city in some senses to, uh, to examine whether there are coercive measures that we, we need to put into place so that if a, a landowner does not abide something, that there is a, a strong enough penalty that uh, it will make it uh, a disincentive to, uh, to scoff law. And I'm not saying that, that uh, this particular landowner did that. That would be untrue, actually. Um, now, that, that said, uh, I'm also going to say that I do believe that the city over the last 50 years, and this really historically comes from the time of, um, of uh, the, the urbanist movement in the 1960s and 70s, David Crombie being most, most famous for that, but uh, also um, Guelph embraced it very, very well. And uh, hence, we have uh, restrictions on, um, on the height of buildings that would impede us looking at the, um, the, uh, the Church of Our Lady. We have preserved a number of buildings, but we haven't got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst example that I will say of this is the, the former TD Bank um, Canada Trust um, branch 
that was on the corner of Wyndham and Cork Street, which was the last example of a particular style of pre-Confederation building in, I think, on in Eastern Canada, but I, I could be wrong on, on that piece. And uh, regrettably, we were not able to preserve that one. But you, you've heard it come up quite frequently, uh, farmhouses on the, in the north end of Guelph, um, other buildings in the south end. Uh, so it will not hurt us to re-examine what we're doing right and what needs improving. That's my teacher language. You never say what we're doing wrong. <laughs> That's right. That uh, that TD bridge now is a great example of uh, 60-0 rectangles, but uh, we'll leave that there. Um, yeah. The other issue kind of coming out of this weekend was um, homecoming, and I appreciate that the U of G is not technically in your ward, but... Um, I imagine you might have heard from some constituents that are concerned that, you know, here we are in Guelph, we have 90 plus people with one dose of a vaccine and the general population doing pretty good case counts relatively low and whammo. Here's this thing that kind of makes all of that look for not. Uh, How are you feeling about sort of those precautions? Um, Getting very blunt. Yeah, uh, yeah, I will be. Uh, I think it's somewhat disgraceful. And it's not just the University of Guelph. It's any institution, quote, of higher learning. I don't know what the hell people are learning, I have to admit. But, uh, uh, you know, Adam, this is my first pandemic. And, <laughs> and, I, and I have to say that uh, I think for the most part, the community, and I'm going to differentiate that, the community has done a good job. Government I think that we can we can question some of, of what we've done. I, I believe that we do need to take strong measures. And uh, probably in some senses, we need to examine whether, in fact, we are sending mixed messages to people like students about what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. Um, I don't blame the city. I blame the provincial government on this. Uh, gatherings such as those kinds, even as we are very successful within the broader community of Canada in vaccinating, um, should be absolutely restricted. Uh we're not messing around here, folks. Uh, I know of people who have been in comas. I know of families that have lost loved ones who have not been present. Uh, I am very fortunate in that, and this is going to sound perverse. My mother passed away before COVID, just a month before it hit. And I am blessed by that because I did not have to address the issue of visiting her during a lockdown. Uh, and if you've ever talked to anybody who has had to go into a, um, a senior's facility, and can't uh, because they, they are just not permitted to visit their loved ones. The stress and the anxiety for all involved, both the people living in those facilities and those that are wanting to visit, is um, it's sad to behold. And uh, we are kicking those people in the teeth when we uh, organize mass gatherings that can be um, uh, significant events for spreading COVID. When you talk about mixed messages, what what are the messages that are getting mixed and how do we kind of unmix them going forward? Well, I think that the the number of people in a gathering is is one of them. The confusion surrounding who should be vaccinated and who should be not is another. I'll give kudos to uh, the government of Quebec who uh, took a really hard approach to to, uh, medical staff 
And actually, just today, I think, uh, uh, was planning on sending dismissal or suspension notices to 18,000 health workers. I don't like it because I'm very sympathetic with, say, the Alberta Nurses Association that identifies that we can't afford to lose one health professional. But my friends in healthcare, and this is at the, um, at the Emerge Ward in Guelph, in Kitchener, and so on, uh, have told me that they are working in a pressure cooker, not ready to blow, but is blowing. And mm. uh, this, this is a problem. If one person is collateral damage from, from COVID and from uh, the irresponsibility of individuals uh, from getting vaccinations, and I excuse people who can't prop, cannot get them for legitimate reasons, uh, we have not done right by the public. I mean, that's a small list, too, of people who can't get the vaccinations. It's, you know, people who can't handle the ingredients or allergic to the ingredients. And uh, I can't remember the yet, but it's like a very small percentage of people who yeah. can. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, I'm uh, I am a skeptical leftist. Uh, <laughs> I don't by nature trust government or corporations, but I have read significant detail on this, on the vaccinations, on social distancing, on wearing masks, and all reasonable evidence tells me that these are the right approaches to take. And uh, truthfully, I am not sympathetic to those who don't wish to take them. It is a choice. It's, uh, it's purely and simply that. And uh, to start to trot out freedoms, is absolute nonsense. There is a social contract that we must abide, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is very good at protecting our liberty, but liberty does not extend to imperiling others. Also worth pointing out, in case uh, people missed it, but the Ontario Human Rights Commission said that vaccine hesitancy was not a protected class last week. No, oh, absolutely it's <laughs> not. And, you know, the 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 argument that I use, which will will not convince anybody because people that don't want to hear it won't, uh, is, you know what? I have a tremendous amount of freedom and liberty, but I don't have the freedom and liberty to drive on your lawn or through the room that you're sitting in right now with my car. That <laughs> is not a freedom that is extended to me. My freedoms and my liberties are limited. My freedom to drink is limited. My freedom to drink and drive is severely limited. My freedom to carry guns is limited. So in a reasonable society, reasonable limits are more than acceptable. They're required. I would point out too, Phil, you have one kidney and uh, some of those restrictions were limited by biology. So, <laughs> Oh, actually, to be honest, none of them are. Not, not, even, not even enjoying a pint. But as I get older, I realize that going to a pub is a young man's game. Uh, <laughs> at, at, eight, at age 65, going to the bathroom is an old man's game. <laughs> All right. We'll leave that there. Uh, I wanted to look ahead a bit to uh, committee next week. There's a, a policy coming back about uh, public petitions. Um, you're kind of the right guy to ask about this, given, uh, you know, your past uh, as a teacher and a historian and i guess one of the things i'm worried about is a lot of the petitions that come I, I think the policy sort of makes it clear that the city wants like 
home, like kind of grassroots petitions. They don't want to kind of go through like change.org and other sites like that. But, you know, those sites kind of make it easier to do the petition. So I guess, does this policy like effectively change anything in the end? If since most people go through change.org anyway, and change.org petitions can't be submitted as a petition, aren't, isn't this just the status quo? Petitions for me are a problem. Um, I sign petitions regularly. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think that it's very important for people to hear from government, but I'll also, or to, for government to hear from people, but, but, but I'll also be very candid on this as well. It's very easy to affix your name, whether it's on change.org or whether it's uh, going to the market and, and signing a list. Um, I know this because I've put petitions together and I've signed them. Um, I will weigh any petition that comes in front of me, regardless what the source is. I will weigh a letter even more strongly. I will weigh a letter that is verbatim what I've seen in another letter, not so strongly. I will weigh a delegate to a committee even more strongly. And somebody such as the people that I was waiting for today, which made me late for our meeting, <laughs> uh, people that contact me directly, uh, who go for a coffee or who phone me and will spend the time to make an argument with me, who will lobby me, I uh, will give them the highest, the utmost consideration because there is a, um, in, in my mind, there is a hierarchy of public input that, that legitimately exists. Some people can't do anything but sign a petition. Sometimes I cannot sign a petition, whether it's change.org or whether it's any other petition. Um, I will scrutinize those petitions carefully to see whether an individual lives in Guelph or uh, whether they are living in Florida and they're not wearing a mask or getting a vaccination. Um, uh, petitions, you know, as people say, uh, they, uh, there's something that in some cases are worth the paper that they're written on. Uh, but nonetheless, I will consider everything about them with the diligence that is required. In your experience, uh, you know, maybe in conversation with your colleagues are petitions, uh, persuasive, like it just in a general sense, or is it kind of like a case by case where if a counselor is kind of inclined to make a decision one way and the petition kind of makes the point, then that gets a little bit more weight than an average petition. I like the way you frame that. Um, Petitions are certainly case by case, and I, and I think that the public is uh, savvy enough to know that if a counselor is on one side or the other of a particular issue, they will assess a petition with their own critical uh, uh, eyes on that uh, and their, their subjective values. So I might receive a petition on, um, uh, as I think this is a good example, on um, establishing um, short-term uh, housing in a particular neighborhood, and I will assess its value based on a number of criteria. The need for the project, the rationale for the petition, whether the points have been raised, the input that I'm receiving from staff, um, uh, social groups, uh, social uh, community groups, so on and so forth, to determine the validity of the petition. And sometimes and this is philosophy lesson here. This is the, the <laughs> differentiation that I must make between democracy and mob rule. Mm. Um, Plato made that uh, distinction, as did Rousseau. Um, it's very easy to fall into uh, 
into mob rule if we're not careful. I must make a reasoned decision at all times. Right. I guess then uh, it comes back to, I mean, it, it's, it'll be nice to have sort of like the, these kinds of things, but I mean, ultimately this policy is not a radical kind of reshape of how council receives information. It, 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 it's, no, I don't think it is. And, and, I, and I think that there's uh, probably the, the best way that I could look at it. It's to ask, how do you value Twitter or Facebook relative to any other input that you might receive? Mm. And, and I have a, a fairly firm policy on, on social media. So it's basically the same with petitions. I do not engage on social media. If somebody wants to meet with me, they need to, to talk to me or meet me face to face. And the reason for that is I cannot in 140 characters, I think it is, uh, or, or less, uh, be able to explain a complex issue. 280, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I cannot explain a complex issue. But what I can say is, you've contacted me, you've got a valid point, let's meet and let's hear about it. Um, so I don't think that there's a radical change. I, I think it's another avenue for expressing your perspective on a particular uh, uh, issue that's come up. Twitter is not the real world. Um, and that's a point uh, we should all keep in mind. Uh, I did want to take a minute since we're running out of time, but I mean, we, this, this interview goes to air on the national day for truth and reconciliation. And again, you were a history teacher. Um, I asked uh, a U of G professor this earlier this year. It just seemed like from my own remembrances of going through school and, and learning history in school, it seems like there's a point where indigenous people sort of leave the common historical narrative. And it's kind of right after Louis Rial, uh, kind of when residential schools start to become a thing, right? And I'm wondering if you're teaching history today, Canadian history today, how do you restore that kind of indigenous point of view uh, into history, especially during these like these periods of like really darkness for indigenous people, things like residential schools, the 60s scoop, like how, how would you teach that history today? Do you think? That's a good question too. Um, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think you're being very generous to the, uh, the historical narrative in Canada by saying that uh, um, uh, indigenous people disappear after Louis Riel. Uh, I think you're uh, extending the date uh, probably <laughs> 300 years. Maybe. I think indigenous, <laughs> indigenous people disappear after Samuel de Champlain. And, uh, and then the Quebecois disappear after, uh, after uh, the, um, uh, the War of 1760. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a principle of to the victor, it seems, writes the history. Uh, but related to that, how would I teach it? I, I would think that we certainly need to teach it in the context of human rights, of, uh, of um, land um, colonization, of, um, of segregation, of the absolute brutality that was committed in the 20th century. Uh, and we should not forget that the whole um, apartheid system was based on the Canadian uh, reserve system. The residential schools were intended deliberately as a form of cultural and other genocide. I have no hesitation saying that either. Um, and uh, we need to rediscover that. I am very glad that we are having a day to acknowledge truth and reconciliation, but it's not a word. 
And one of the things that uh, we do in our, at James Gordon and I do in our breezy breakfast is that we ask people to personalize a land acknowledgement. It's all well and fine that the city has a land acknowledgement, but I'm, I'm not certain that we've addressed the key issues, which mm. are whose land is it anyway? Um, you know, we, we've not uh, addressed in Canada issues of safe drinking water, of, of effective uh, um, support for, for Indigenous people uh, to, to rediscover, and I, and I mean this quite literally, rediscover their heritage. The, the plaintive stories that I've heard from, uh, from the children and grandchildren of survivors of residential schools um, makes me realize how significant the, uh, the attempt to wipe out culture was. And it, it's, uh, it extends almost halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from shore to shore to shore. That's our history, not the opening up of the culture of the continent. I talked to Bruce Weaver recently, and he said he, he considers a territorial acknowledgement important, but he, he did, as you said, uh, is important to you and James that like to personalize it, to like make it your own. Because I do, I do wonder sometimes if, because it's, it's kind of performa now, we do the territorial acknowledgement in just about every setting, but it, it almost, I, I worry it's, beca- it's going to become like something like the national anthem. It's just something we do that you don't really pay attention to. Well, ex- exactly. And, you know, it, it's funny that even in high school, uh, we had to do the Lord's Prayer then, too. So uh, uh, you're, you're quite correct. It, it's pro forma. And and this is a problem in my mind, because if you ask people what it means, they don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a big so what on a lot of this for a whole lot of uh, uh, non-Indigenous people in Canada. And I, and I think it is important for us to appreciate that it's non-Indigenous um, uh, as, as much as anything else. We need this to separate this out. This is unique uh, in, in our culture and in, and in the culture of the Americas. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go any further into that. We are out of time, but uh, Phil Alt, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. And uh, remember, remember back to the good old days when we were on radio together. It's I, a fond memories. I, I remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> and you tell that to kids today, and they just won't believe you. <laughs> All right, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Adam. Take care. Best of Scotty. And once again, that was Word 3. I almost said Word 6 counselor for some reason. Anyway, uh, Word 3 counselor, Phil Alt. And... Uh, yeah. Pick a ward, any ward. <laughs> Pick a ward. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. There's an election next year anyway. It could, it, anyone could be anything this time next year. Anyway, we'll have to, we'll put that on the back burner for now. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this week's show. You can tell it's about punchy time here yeah, on yeah, Open yeah. Sources. So uh, that's it for the show. Stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to this show again, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter. And for all things CFRU, check out CFRU.ca. We're scheduling information when the show is on, when it's on again, when Adam's other shows are on. All of that is there. 
CFRU.ca. Check it out. Check it out. And check out DJ Sounds Good to Me here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back here next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another Open Sources, and we will see you then.